Welcome to the Multitask. This is John. It's your boy Fadi. What's going on, guys? So we had <laughs> um, more hearings this week, uh, and um, it was fascinating. Uh, we got to hear a lot of information. Um, you know, I think that somebody asked me the other day, well, what is this going to do? What does this really mean? You know, does it really truly mean anything? I'm not sure what it's going to do, but I, you know, in, in the short term with political advantage, but I do think when it comes to the eyes of history, I do think regardless of what the outcome is, these are really important hearings. It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, I'm kind of flabbergasted that you went that way because that's what I've been kind of feeling all week outside of the political ramifications of it in 2022, 2024, outside of holding people accountable and stuff like that. If we take a moment just to look at, uh, I consider myself a political nerd. I read books and podcasts on, on Watergate. I'm always fascinated with process and how things play out. And on Thursday's hearings, there was testimony basically that the Proud Boys admitted that they would have killed Pence if they got their hands on him. Now we were we watched it live. They were they were chanting hang Mike Pence. They were looking for Pence amongst Pelosi, AOC, whatever, but they were really going after Pence and Trump's tweet kind of um started that. And I was kind of in a moment of shock. I knew this was, I watched it live, but for this to go in a congressional hearing to say that the sitting president basically put out a hit on the, the sitting vice president. Uh, that that's how is that not the greatest political scandal in this country's history? And and I, I don't know if it's talked about in that way. Right. Well, I was going to say um, what was fascinating is I had a very busy day when the hearing was on. So I, I was kind of listening. I wasn't as detached as you are, but you know, it was one of those things where I was listening. I had it on the background. I wasn't paying hard attention. And all of a sudden I would see a tweet and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what did I miss? But when I heard about the whole proud boy admission, that uh, they would have killed Mike Pence. Um, like you said, it's something that we felt, but when you hear that confirmation of it, it changes everything. And if you think about the um, the fact that there's a lot of beliefs that there were back channels between Trump and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and <laughs> a lot of the other stuff that come out. I mean, when you hear just about Pence, you know, when you see the pictures of him, one sitting in that first office and then sitting in the in the in the, in the loading zone or loading loading uh, area, um, it makes you it, it brings it home again, but brings it home in a different way. And you know, to a point I made earlier, I think that um, we are so political right now that unfortunately, if something doesn't have immediate political ramifications or stakes we think it's meaningless or we think what's the point. But I think one, just because it doesn't, doesn't mean it won't. But then two, even if nothing comes of it, this stuff has to get out there. It has to be there for the annals of history and history is not going to treat, treat the people involved with January 6th well at all. Yeah. And, and that's fascinating to juxtapose that with the former President Trump saying that when I'm back in office, I'm going to give all these people pardons, right? Like, it's pretty it's pretty obvious that this was schemed out. Like you said, for them to confirm it, it, it wasn't so much the confirmation for me as much as it was, um, it wasn't a spur of the moment, a couple of people wanted to hang Mike Pence. This was planned. They, cut, they came in knowing that if Pence didn't do what they wanted, they were going to try to kill him. And this, this was, a, I don't know how this isn't like life in jail. I don't know how this isn't, 
um, I mean, attempted murder is still a charge. Like that's a crime. Right. And so it's fascinating to me. It's also fascinating how close Pence was. We saw that with the first, first hearing uh, back in, uh, in the fall or whenever it was like the first initial hearing, they showed videotape of how close Pence and, and, and secret service were to the, to the crowd. Um, do you, so let me ask you this question. It, it won't matter for Republicans and it won't matter for the MAGA crowd, but do you think, and the first hearing and the last hearing will probably get more eyeballs than the kind of the middle hearings, even though the middle hearings, as we saw, were doing pretty good numbers uh, in the middle of a workday. Um, do you think that how do uh, do you think that people are surprised by any of this? Do you think people are as shocked that this is actually happening, even though we all watched it? Is, does that make sense? Like, do you think people? I think people still care, but do you think people? are as angry, as hurt as they were in that moment, hearing it all back? It's hard to say, and I think different people respond to different things. Um, I think, you know, you, I think, and I think it goes right back to what I was saying, is I do think that we have to stop for a minute looking at it through a political lens. Mm -hmm. And what we're hearing is devastating, what we're hearing when you when you realize how close we came to losing our democracy and how close we still are to losing our democracy mm-hmm. um i do and but but you know it's weird though too i also hate the fact that we can hear all this stuff and um then you know a, an hour after the hearing and everything else and they'll look in the camera and say the press will look in the camera and say and trump's still the front runner at what point in time do we hear all this stuff and we hear that Trump's still the front runner and somebody on those panels, on those panel panels tell us that's an American problem. The fact that American people, that a significant amount of the American population can hear this type of information and they still think, oh, I'm going to go with this guy. We have to start realizing and calling that out as a true problem. And, and, I, and I don't think the press does that enough. I, maybe a few pundits, but we got to really, I mean... It's weird because everybody wants the problem to be contained and they don't even want it to be contained because if they want it contained, but then they still want to, in the same breath, talk about how Trump's the potential front runner. It's that's, that's, that's unacceptable in my mind. You know, it's interesting. I was reading a couple of tweets this morning um, and we, we talked about this before. We don't want to rail on the media and be one of those people, but they're, they're still treating the Republican party as a serious party. And the Republican Party isn't anymore. They have conspiracy theories in there. They have the majority of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. Majority of Republicans believe in anti-science, anti-vax. They believe JFK is coming back from the dead to instill Trump. Um, If any, any other party came in and said this, they would get laughed out of the room, right? And Although I don't know what the Republicans used to stand for, is like obviously these are the same kind of cult, uh, not cult, but it's cut from the same cloth of Republicans back in the seventies, eighties, sixties, whatever. But um, frankly speaking, this isn't a, a political party that's serious anymore. They don't have any morals or values or principles or platforms. All they believe is banning people and violence and guns and and quote unquote law and order, which doesn't apply to them, right? And it also makes me think of. Um, all the people who kind of got away from, like, there's people who just got probation for being at the Capitol and stuff like that. And this should have been a bigger thing. And I think the media 
again, I don't want to be that guy who's like the media, but but it's unfortunate that the media is just a horse race uh, kind of coverage now. Republicans, Democrats, we see C- CNN kind of go a little bit more center and, and give Republicans platforms that they shouldn't have. And there's a lot of people in the Trump world who are being normalized back in society again. Or not that they shouldn't be banned from society, but to put them on CNN and give them a platform um, is unfortunate. And the media is failing. The media is failing this country 1,000%. And I don't know how to fix that. I really don't. But um, we're, we're at a, a, a really pivotal point in democracy. We're at a pivotal point in our country where the next two elections might decide one way or the other. And the media isn't covering it in that way. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things when we hear about how the media is, well, not hear about the media, when we see the media connecting themselves to this matter, and I'm going to do a sidebar, I don't want to get derailed from the January 6th conversation, but there is one thing that I think is a good sidebar. This week, there was a lot of story, or this past week, there's a lot of speculation of whether or not Biden should run in 24, and whether or not Democrats want to run in 24. To me, those are distractions. Those are distractions to get away from January 6th. Those are distractions because guess what? If if, if, if we don't have January 6th going on and we're talking about Biden, what are we not talking about? The midterms. And you and I both know you can't really make any kind of um, <clears throat> informed analysis or speculation on who could be or should be the front runner in uh, 24 until we know really what happens in November. And so to your point about the media failing that's now tied back to January 6th is January 6th, there should really be no other news. Maybe a little bit of inflation, you know, obviously the gun stuff. um, And obviously we we don't want to forget Ukraine. But to throw in this whole discussion about whether or not Biden should be president and will be running for president in 24, that's a distraction. I think it's a distraction on two levels. One, it distracts us from January 6th. It, 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 that, that, that discussion should not be on the same panel that they're discussing January 6th at all. But, what, but, but I feel like that's a goosed thing that helps distract us or minimize or throw so much, you know, we talk about multitasking, throw so much into the ether that we're really not able to truly give this outrageously historic, significant, tragic incident the really um, the attention it deserves. Yeah, it's fascinating that you bring that up because I was just unrelated to politics. I was reading um, a couple stories about Curry in the finals and and just the NBA coverage. And a a journalist in the NBA world had brought up the fact that he is fascinated with the NBA coverage. Now, back 15, 20 years ago, you might have caught a local newspaper that did an article on the finals, the sports, the city, the actual um, city that wins the finals, I'm sure has coverage. But now there's 15, 20 articles two hours after the finals game and during media coverage, there's ESPN talking about it the next day. There's a, a national push amongst the sports community. This is what's important. This is all we're going to talk about. We're not talking about the NFL today. We're not talking about um, baseball. This is what we're talking about with Steph Curry, his legacy, and that's going to stretch for weeks and weeks and weeks enough to, to penetrate the ether of the country. And then people start having these conversations in barbershops and stuff like that. And the political world just doesn't, um, I don't think the political world is doing that. There, there isn't a bigger story than January 6th. Now it's, it's probably the biggest story I think 
in the history of our country. I really, I, granted, I don't know enough about the 1700s, 1800s, and the early 1900s to know what the presidents were doing. But the fact that the, the sitting vice president tried to uh, get his supporters to riot the Capitol, kill the vice president, should be a bigger story, right? And it's not, it's not being covered that way. Everything is, well, who really cares about January 6th? I think part of the problem is the country, uh, Republicans specifically, make a lot of noise. And the noise ends up being the news story as opposed to the actual news. And, and you said this early on in the podcast uh, earlier this year was the, the news reporter hears that it's raining. It's not his job to cover that. It's to go outside and see if it's raining or not. And the, the media is not covering it. They're basically covering uh, the reaction of the right most of the time and not the fact that 11 million people, 12 million people woke up on a Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. And watched hearings. That's unheard of. And th- that wasn't even a story, to be honest. And so you're right. I think you're absolutely right in everything you said. Right. And, you know, so going back to the meat of what we heard, um, we heard from one of the attorneys that represented the vice president. We heard from a judge that the vice president um, uh, or some other folks sought counsel from. And um, I think the thing that is also we have to be careful, um, is this quick desire to turn Pence into a hero. Um, Pence, all Pence did was the job that he was asked to do. He wasn't a hero. Um, if <laughs> Pence was a hero at any given time, he would have told the, the president, this is really bad the case. And also, if Pence is a hero, why the hell is he sitting in front of the January 6th commission right now testifying? Because if he really is the hero that everybody wants him to be, now I'm not going to diminish or minimize what he did and how maybe courageous it was to stand up to the president. But again, we're we're going ahead and saying standing up to the president makes you courageous, or more importantly, not standing up to the president, following the rules, following the laws make you courageous, as opposed to he would have, you know, the cowardly thing to do would have been to give in to Trump and and everything. So, um, I mean, what, what do you, how do you feel about the whole treatment of the way the media is, is categorizing Pence as a hero or some of the media are categorizing him as a hero? Well, not only do I disagree, but I actually push back on a few things you said. He didn't do the, he didn't do the courageous thing. He, he did the, he did the thing that he only could do despite trying to do the other things. Remember, Pence didn't wake up right away and say, I'm not doing this. He talked to former vice presidents. Paul Ryan tried to talk to him. He talked to lawyers. He tried to figure out what he can do because he wanted to do what Trump asked him to do. So it wasn't that he woke up and it's like, no, this is wrong morally and ethically. He, he just didn't want to go to jail. So he was asking lawyers, how can I do this? What is my legal ramifications? Can I do this? Because I will. And I forgot the name, but he talked to former vice presidents. And I think Paul Ryan talked to him and said, you can't absolutely do this. And so it just came to the point where they were like, this is illegal. You can't do nothing. And Pence was forced to certify it. And so I don't think he even did anything courageous. The only thing I, I give him credit for was he knew there was going to be threats on his life. And he showed up. And when they ushered him out the building and Secret Service told him to get in this car, we're leaving. He said, no, I'll give him credit there because that. That takes uh, uh, some fortitude to, s- to tell your Secret Service no and to sit there in threats and wait it out and and, and uh, ratify, uh, do your job, essentially. But I don't think any of that other stuff great is also another point. You said he would have he would have told Trump uh, earlier. He, he should have told the people earlier. 
he could have easily had a press conference and said, Trump's trying to overturn a fair fair election. He could have invoked the 25th Amendment, right? There was a little push there, and Pence was, didn't want to do that. And partly because he would have became president and, and he probably didn't want to become president that way. But he could have invoked the 25th Amendment because he knew Trump was a threat. So as far as I'm concerned, Pence did the bare minimum and he gets credit for that. He doesn't get credit for much more. Um, one of the things that came out was John Eastman. Um, when it, when one of the things that was revealed was that John Eastman actually asked to be included on the pardon list. So the first question that we have to ask is, a pardon list? Who else is on that pardon list? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that one of the um, uh, the, the guys that uh, oftentimes, I think Glenn Kirshner was on Stephanie Miller's show this week, and he, he pointed it out. He said he does wonder how many pocket pardons that were given. So what he means by that is the fact that you had a situation where um, uh, you had a situation where Ivanka, Jared, and I think Don Jr. all testified, and they didn't plead the fifth, and Eastman pled the fifth. So the question is, did Don Jr., did Ivanka, did um, Jared get pocket pardons? So one, who else do you think is on that list, in, in, your, in your opinion? If there, if there is, in fact, a, a, a pardon list, who's on that list? I think this isn't. Uh, 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 I don't think this, there's many pocket pardons, if any. The reason I say that is because I don't think anything in the Trump world is unleakable. I think this would have been out whether it was Maggie. Someone might be saving it for a book, and I don't know if. If but I just don't think they could keep a secret enough um, to have it be a uh, secret, if that makes sense. So I don't think there is. If there was, I don't think any of his kids are on it because, as you've seen with Ivanka testifying that he'll go at his kids. He is loyal to nobody. He doesn't care about anything but himself, even his own kids. So I don't think there's any political, uh, I don't think there's any pocket pardons, but if there was, I don't think he'll save his kids. I think maybe, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't think there's anybody more important than his kids in his world, but even them, they're not that important. So I don't, I don't actually think um, that there, this is a thing. I don't think that there's more coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Um, well, no, I do think that there is a, is a pardon list, and I do wonder who got pocket pardons. And the question that I would have, too, from the legal standpoint, is are, pardon part, are pocket pardons legal? Um, and how, you know, is there a way to reverse them? Is there a way to, you know, declare some of the uh, pardons, you know, invalid? Now, one of the things I thought about, I want to bring right now, and it's something that is controversial. Um, and this goes to whether or not Garland goes ahead and ultimately indicts. This goes to, do you reverse pardons? Do you do anything else? Do you know how, like, a lot of the action that, whether it's Garland or the House or the Senate, a lot of action that they're reluctant to take, and we do this as Democrats, is based upon the fact that, wow, what would that do to the country? Right. Like what would Mm -hmm. that do to the country if this I think we have to accept a truth right now. Outrageous, irreversible damage has been done to this country already. And the damage is so severe that we will be probably decades, if not generations, before we really fully, truly understand what damage was done to this country. That being said, this desire to protect the institutions 
this desire to, um, you know, not set precedent or the desire to do things that have never done before, something as simple as going ahead and just, you know, revoking a pardon. Um, and that's not simple. I shouldn't say something as simple as, as revoking a pardon. Revoking a pardon is not simple. But part of me wonders is the reluctance to do to reluctance to do stuff drastic that would be considered drastic is that short-sighted because what they're not realizing is that there's been outrageous damage already done and unless it is met with drastic measures that damage will continue to be done what is your thought on 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 that uh hypothesis um i've thought about this pretty uh uh intently i think in order to protect institutions, you have to. You, I believe you have to realize why the institutions are there, and the institutions are there to protect the country. And so, if you don't protect the institutions, or if you don't protect the country, then the institutions don't matter. And what I mean by that is, we talked about this with our guest Brendan, the historian. This idea that if we know Trump broke laws, if we know that Trump violated the Constitution in an illegal manner. And there isn't consequences, there isn't ramifications, there isn't um, some sort of punishment, then you don't have any rules. And then when you don't have rules and you don't have a constitution, you, I believe you no longer have a functioning country. You have uh, a bunch of states who are just winging it on some point, right? So to answer your question, I believe if we're if we're looking at unprecedented actions on our part, it's because it was we're reacting to unprecedented things that they did. What Trump did was unprecedented. It has to be met with uh, that sort of same energy, right? What he did was historic in nature, and the reaction has to be historic in nature. They're trying to crumble the institutions for a reason. There's a reason that the first day that Trump was inaugurated, that Sean Spicer went up there and said the, the, the news media was fake and that you don't believe everything you read, believe everything we tell you. There's a reason that he was playing games with the FBI. There's a reason that he chose Putin over the FBI and the CIA and the information communities here uh, in the States, right? There's a reason that he's going at, he's the reason he went at Fauci and the the CDC. There's a reason that he goes after institutions because he wants to crumble trust in them. And he's successful. He successfully did that. People think FBI was involved in January 6th. People think Fauci is from China and the CDC is from China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, they're, they were very successful at that. But in order to combat that, we have to meet meet their energy. And and we'll see. I, again, I've already written on my Garland rant. We'll see what happens. This morning, it was reported that January 6th gave them everything that they had asked for. So um, we'll see. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. But it has to be met with the same energy. All right. Now, one of the things that came out, and I don't know when they'll actually d- talk about it in the hearings, was there were videos released this week of... Uh, uh, some of the guests of Representative Laudermilk uh, from Georgia walking around, and they mm-hmm. appear to be casing the joint. That re- that one guy was taking photos of stuff that most tourists don't take photos of, and then allegedly the same guy, um, you know, re- recorded that video on January sixth, where he's talked to the guy who's got the f- uh, flagpole that's sharpened up and you know could be used as a weapon, and they talked about they're coming for people, but. Something that I don't think Loudermilk has really acknowledged in his denials and something I think the press needs to zoom in more on is 
I guarantee the January 6th commission and the Department of Justice have already interviewed the people on the Loudermilk tour. So Loudermilk can say whatever he wants in the press. I guarantee you that the people that were on his tour have been identified and have been talked to. What say you? I couldn't agree with you more. It seems like they definitely know those people and they definitely um, interviewed them. I wholeheartedly believe that. I also think he lost credibility, not that he had credibility, but he lost any sort of credibility in explaining this because he initially said, and correct me if I'm wrong, he initially said he didn't give any tours January 5th. Then when it was confirmed, he said, no, 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 it it wasn't a tour. It was like family and friends. <clears throat> and then when it was confirmed that it wasn't just family and friends, he said, no, it was, it was kind of a tour and they brought people and I kind of left them alone. And so there is no credibility with them. All of these people are going to get caught. Now, whether they're all punished or not is, uh, I don't know if he actually broke any rules, right? He could have just gave a tour granted f- from my understanding. And you would know this, the January 5th, uh, the Capitol was closed. So I don't know if he broke any rules, but, um, yeah, I, I think all these people are going to get caught. I just It's just a matter of if there's any legal thing that they did wrong or if there's going to be punishment for that. But as far as I'm concerned, that dude is a traitor and he let he let the enemy in the, in the Capitol, so to say. Right. And when, when I say they know who it is and, and you, like you said, are going to get caught, um, the January 6th commission released dude's video. They released his photos. That means that they know who it is and that means that he's been talked to. Because that means they would have had to break into his phone to get the photos that were taken. And Loudermilk can go ahead and do all of his lying and everything else. But in my opinion, I don't think that the January 6th commission and probably the uh, Justice Department could have what they have, uh, especially that first person video from the guy, without actually no one identifying the man and to actually have hauling them into uh, some level of interrogation or testimony. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if this is going to be part of their, it seems like they're, uh, John, how do you read this? It, are they releasing these things? Cause it might not be, are they doing it in preparation because they're going to talk about it during the hearings? Or you think this is kind of what I consider extra stuff that, that might not fit uh, the hearing time, the hearing schedule but they want to release the stuff as uh, everyone's talking about it. So do you think that this is going to get addressed or do you think that they're just releasing extra info amongst the hearings? I think there's, it could be those two pieces. It could be a reason for us to tune in. I mean, what better way, you know, when we find out if all of a sudden they say the dude who shot that video, we're going to play his, his testimony or, or haul him in front of you guys. That's another thing. Um, I'll give you another piece. Um, you know what else it might be? Um, and this is something that uh, the military uses all the time. It might be psyops. It might be psychological warfare. It might mm-hmm. be hey, louder milk. Because don't forget, um, they interviewed Mickey Sherrill, who is the congresswoman, who has, I think, both a military and a prosecutor, prosecutorial background. Who, right after the insurrection happened, she was one of the people who went on Rachel Maddow and said, "I saw people giving tours." And when after they had her on this week. And she said, well, just so you know, yeah, that was one of the ones I saw, but it was not the only one. So, again, when I say it's psychological warfare, uh, you know, have you ever heard the phrase there might, you know, when people are a little nervous, their sphincters are tightening up? I'm sure that I'm sure that the louder milk receipts, um, in addition to it, the, the face value that we're looking at it, 
in addition to some of the strategic things that we're talking about, I also think the third piece is that there definitely was some type of psyops, psychological warfare piece telling all the other members who gave tours, you about to be put on blast. Just like with that one guy, remember when they first talked about pardons and it was that one member asked for a pardon and they said there's, they named one member, but it's in a whole bunch of others. So I think that there's some, there's some psychological warfare going on uh, by the January 6th commission. Well, let me take it a step further. Do you think, um, uh, do you think that, how do I want to ask this question? Sorry, I don't mean to. Um, do you think that they're calling the bluff of these people in the sense that <clears throat> even in we'll transition to Jeannie Thomas in a second, Jeannie Thomas, whatever, we'll transition to her in a second. But do you think they're saying, hey, if you did nothing wrong, cool, come on down because they know the truth and they're trying to get them maybe to perjure themselves or to tell lies so they could counter that with truth. So I do believe the January 6th commission knows Um but I wonder if they're trying to almost uh, play a little cat and mouse game to say, hey, what's this, uh, Representative Loudermilk? What is this about? Get them to lie. Get them to lie on the stand. And then say, oh, well, we actually know. So do you think there's a little bit of those games going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, it can be perjury traps. It can be everything. But I also think, too, and think about this. Now put on the filmmaker hat. Um and you were right about, um, you know, maybe it's not going to have a, a, a stand. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a standalone thing without much element is you have X amount of content, but only so much stuff that you can use. So and it's and so it's who knows, you know, who knows. But I do think don't you agree that every leak, everything that comes out is a purpose pitch. Nothing just leaks. Everything is everything that's coming out is it has some type of strategic benefit to the January 6th commission in order for it to come out. Yeah. I also think there's stuff that's not going to come out uh, because it's just so much, there's just too much that's going on for them to really communicate that. Um, is there, do you think there's going to be a, a full report as, as after, do you think it's going to be like, here's everything we know every, uh, I know they, uh, they sent everything to the DOJ, all the transcripts and stuff. I don't think they'll release that to the public as much, but do you think there'll be a final big massive report that says, here's everything we know big or small? Yes. And I'm going to call it, I'm going to use, I'm going to go back to a movie phrase. It's going to be called the January 6th commission, the director's cut. And, 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 and don't forget um, we're about to talk about uh, Jenny Thomas. Jenny Thomas is going to be interviewed in July after they're done. So the, I guess the question would be, though, too, is, you know, they want to have the hearings, at least the televised hearings, wrapped up by June. But they're getting so much data. Do, one, are they going to really wrap them up in June? Are they going to extend it? Is there going to be a follow-up, you know, uh, uh, January 6th, too, breaking uh, the electric boogaloo? I don't know, although boogaloos do have a little bit of, relevance in, in this mm -hmm. whole scenario but um to your, there is a lot of data and and a lot of content and a lot of evidence and <clears throat> if they don't land the, you know do we insist that the plane land in june if there's if they keep getting stuff i mean and and that goes right back to what we've said about i know that i know the press will go ahead and, and and pretend that um it's you know uh it's a train wreck what have you but if you were them, would you land the plane on the day you said land the plane? Or if you keep getting information, 
do you extend it and how, how would people view that? Um, I, I, I'm actually a little surprised they're going this fast as they're still finding things out. Granted, here's something, John, they're going to probably, we're going to find things out for a long, long time. So maybe they just feel like we know the big picture. We know 85% and we'll get some trickles in here or there. Um, <clears throat> but I wonder, I wonder if they should do maybe the last one or maybe they should do like a, a post wrap up, like do the six original six. And before they kind of f- sign off or they, before they send everything to DOJ, uh, I wonder if they just have a big kind of public hearing and release all the, uh, like you said, the cutting room for the director's cut stuff. Um, I also think the leaks, not the leaks, but the stuff they're re- re- releasing about Loudermilk and Jeannie Thomas and all these people, that stuff is penetrating through the conversation as well. So if we have the hearings on top of that, it, it could be effective. So uh, maybe they they don't need 10, 15 hearings, if you will. All right. Now, just so you know, what prompted this week's or this past week's uh, demand on Jenny Thomas, I believe, and I think there was a number of different pieces, but there was something where um, Eastman was basically uh, telling folks that he believes um, that there is a lot of dissension on the Supreme Court about what to do with not January 6th at this point, but just the effort to go ahead and overturn the election. And he, everybody is under the belief that Eastman was in regular communication with Jenny Thomas. And that sounds like something only someone very close to the Supreme Court, i.e. Jenny Thomas, would know. So um, if you paid attention this week to some of the stuff that came out about uh, Eastman and Jenny Thomas, what was the one thing that kind of set you to to you know made your ears prick up so to speak um so the the connection to eastman is important because eastman asked for a pardon so if he knew he broke laws then i wonder how involved she was also also her stories continue to change remember she was caught early on with the DeSantis stuff and, and stuff he was doing. And then it went to the Arizona and Nevada. And then now it's with Eastman. I wonder also how this relates to Clarence Thomas and in the way that if she's, if she's uh, stupidly doing this stuff in broad daylight, so to say emails and, and nothing's encrypted and there isn't secret meetings. I can't imagine that she's, she's not texting or emailing stuff to Clarence Thomas as well. Do you think that the January 6th commission is able to investigate that side? Do they have all her communications or do you think they're trying to be a little respectful of Clarence Thomas? I think they're being respectful, but I also have to start wondering what's actually going on with the Supreme court. Is there, is, is there any, as they look at like whether or not who leaked the whole abortion ruling and everything else, are they looking at, whether or not members, i.e. Clarence Thomas, are sharing stuff with relative, you know, intimate members, family spouses, and are those potentially the source of the leaks, right? And and mm-hmm. the thing is, is that I think if, in fact, if think about this, if, in fact, there was, uh, as was reported or as uh, Eastman indicated in his email, that there were some fights on the Supreme Court, um, and you remember the Supreme Court, and you were on the opposite side of Clarence Thomas on this, and you believe he may have leaked it, do you start looking? I mean, what's the trust right now of the Supreme Court members of one another, right? So to your point about can the January 6th commission investigate it, 
one, I don't know if they can, but I also would think if John Roberts is doing his job, the January 6th commission doesn't need to investigate it because John Roberts is going ahead and, 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 and having it investigated. Yeah, uh, I also just think they might try to protect him. I, I think John Roberts is so worried about the institution, as we were just talking about. John Roberts is, is worried about how the Supreme Court looks uh, publicly. And I wonder if he, they know, but John, they, these guys, these people know each other. So I think they know that she might have been a problem, quote unquote, but they're never going to go against one of their own. I don't know what the president is here. I don't know if there's this has been happening before. I don't know if there's been leaks and they churned on each other. I really don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever resigned. It's pretty clear that Clarence Thomas is a distraction. He's uh, he's. Uh, I don't want to use the word corrupt in a bad way, but he's he's um, unobjective and he's 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 um, spoiled, if you will. He he can't be trusted to have a fair opinion here, as we've seen before. So if John Roberts cares about the institution, cares about the public image of the Supreme Court, it's pretty clear what he has to ask Clarence Thomas to do, and so. I'm not worried about John Roberts because I think we know the truth and we know what happened and we know uh, objectively that this is wrong <clears throat> and he should recuse himself, if not just flat out resign. So uh, the Supreme Court has been ruined and tarnished, in my opinion, because of everything that they made it political and that this is where we stand now. So if they want to fix that, there's only one way to fix that. Right. But, you know, you and I both know it's not going to happen. Clarence Thomas has no backbone. Uh, or, or I don't say backbone, he has no courage, he has no sense of decency, um, and he will never ever re uh, resign. He, I doubt he'll even recuse. He's just, he's just that unethical. Um, but you know, as as we we look at all that's going on with January six and the far-reaching implications, you know, we are uh, probably a couple of days, if not, you know, maybe weeks, if not a couple of days away from actually getting uh, a ruling on Roe versus Wade raid. Um, we all know in essence what the general spirit is. We don't know what the final what the final opinions will be and if it will be as far reaching as was initially indicated. But again, when we go back to the January 6th piece and we talked about how they distract from, um, you know, they talk about Biden running for president, how that's a distraction. There's a lot of natural distractions. And I think the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe versus Wade will be one of those natural distractions. It'll be very interesting to see, one, when it drops, what it says, and what people's reactions to it will be. What, what are your thoughts on on, on the impending uh, Supreme Court decision regarding Roe versus Wade? And John, you, you corrected me last week, but this has to go down because the session's over and then uh, they're, they're, uh, obviously Charlie Brown Jackson's going to step in in July as well. So is that why the deadline's there? Yeah. Well, it has nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with just their cycle, right? It has everything to do with the the way that they, you know, she, look, she can't be sworn in until Breyer resigns. Breyer resigns at the end of the court. Um, but they, but you also, they don't, it's to everyone's benefit that um, as soon as they're done with this session, she, he resigned so that she can actually, have two or three months getting her feet wet before she has to start really doing the hardcore work before they're really truly in session. Plus, you know, it, it'll be, it'll be delivered. But I mean, we've only got, it's uh, the 18th. This will be air on the 20th. We've got, we've got 12 to 10, 10 to 12 days left of the month. And I do think we're going to hear something. So 
that being said, what what is your anticipation? Just you know, I saw an article this morning where the pro rights group, the people, the people, the pro life groups. I'm sorry, the people who stand outside abortion clinics and protests are worried about the backlash against them. Tough, 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 tough. So, what what are your thoughts on on the potential or the upcoming decision of Roe versus Wade? I think, I don't know if there's going to be more outrage than originally happened. Granted, when if the leak happened that this was going to be a thing, I think a lot of people um, said, well, let's see. We'll see the dissent and we'll see what people say and we'll go from there. It might not happen. It might happen. But I think a lot of people reacted already. And I think a lot of people are just going to feel validated. And <clears throat> when we were screaming from the mountaintops in 2016 not to vote for Trump, I think a lot of people will feel validated. I also think it'll uh, radicalize a lot of people. I think there's going to be a lot of people in this country, younger and older, who are saying this country is really going downhill fast and we cannot allow uh, this to happen. And and we also seen a lot of states already, Texas, Louisiana, uh, a lot of the red states say follow footsteps and say they're going to ban abortion outright as soon as this drops. So I think there's going to be a massive pushback and I think it's going to lead to uh, anger and um, hurt amongst uh, people who care about this stuff, as as we should. And I think it's going to lead to people being uh, energized. I think not to use it politically, but like I was telling you earlier, just keep the, January 6th is energizing us. Uh, Roe v. Wade is going to energize us and we're just going to keep going and going. So uh, we have to match their energy is how I look at it. And I think we will meet the moment. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder how many people will actually how people will vote and um and what how if this will have the motivating factor you know in 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 november one of the other things that uh, broke between the, this podcast and the last one was that there was a breakthrough on uh in the senate with some type of uh, uh gun safety legislation we're now close to uh i I'm, i understand there's now some hiccups i'm still optimistic but um, this would be significant. It would be the largest uh, and most significant gun package in 30 years. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the people I talk about on the left who are, who let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, if the framework uh, holds, um, there are a lot of elements um, that really do impact stuff. I think one of the things that, and I want you to pay attention to this if you've not noticed it yourself, one of the things that the gun rights crowd does and does effectively is they are un- of the understanding and they know this, that the best way to get rid of gun violence is an entire portfolio of laws. But they know that any one law is not going to be effective by itself. So what they do is they zoom in on something and they, whatever the current crisis, they'll zoom in on one law and, and talk about all the different types of gun crimes it would not prevent. Right. And and so that's why when we, if we're going to have effective gun legislation, it is going to have to be a portfolio. It's going to have to be a lot of different things. But one of the things that's really important and uh, someone I'm close to is involved with this, but is that this framework includes straw purchases and trafficking. Now, this is really important because the people on the right like to always say, what about Chicago? What about New York? What about all these places where they have very strong gun laws? Well, guess what? reason why there's so much crime in our hometown of Chicago is because when you're Indiana, when you're Wisconsin, when you're Michigan, when you're Missouri, when you're Kentucky, and, and, and the guns can come here because the trafficking laws are not strong enough. 
And if we want to go ahead and really see a difference in a place like Chicago, gun trafficking and addressing gun trafficking and straw purchases is one of the most significant things we can do. Now, AOC went ahead and complained that this is not going to, this is going to criminalize people. It's not going to help black and brown communities. Well, as a person that's uh, not in the heart of the gun violent communities in Chicago, but very aware of what's going on into them, anything that removes illegal guns or prevents the flow of illegal guns is going to help black and brown people. So do you have any thoughts on what you've heard about the gun legislation and what the next, what you think might be the next steps? Yeah, it's interesting when the, when it first kind of, when the proposal kind of dropped, I sent it to you and I said, I'm not sure how much it'll help, but it's a, it's legislation. They did something right. And I, and I just kind of gave a little shoulder uh, shrug emoji to say, Hey, this is a step, but it's certainly not the only step and certainly not the final step. Right. There's also an aspect here of, Two things that I think is, is interesting. There hasn't been gun legislation passed um, in a long time in this country, right? And so even if this doesn't ban assault weapons or doesn't raise the, the age or what have you, um, to pass legislation, uh, at least bipartisan, it doesn't even matter if it's bipartisan or not, but to pass gun legislation and what we consider to be a pretty stalemate Congress um, is is uh, uh, successful. It's, it's just another uh, kind of step to take, as I said. The last aspect here is someone pointed out that um, I think we, and I was naive to, not naive to, but uh, sometimes we have a focused mindset of school shootings or what have you, but there's a domestic violence aspect to this bill that um, an expert in the, in, the, in the DV field was saying will save lives. Like if it saves, here's, here's what this person was saying that I finally kind of turned the corner on this was, if this bill saves one or two lives, isn't that enough then? It, do, it might not save all the lives. It might not prevent all the school shootings. But if it saves 10, 15 lives across the board, isn't that enough to say this is successful? And in that way, we have to look at this as a success. So that made me kind of turn the corner on it. There's a lot more room to go. And we saw states, specifically blue states across the country, start raising the minimum age to buy an assault rifle, uh, rifle to 21. So uh, this something came out of it, if you will. And, and it's, if it saves lives, then it's successful. And can I be blatantly political for a second? People on the right, people on the left want gun policies. People on the left, I mean, people on the right don't. If we're able to pass something, and you know how we keep hearing... Even though Biden has gotten build back and that build back better, he's gotten the 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 uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's had a lot of victories, but we always hear Biden's had no victories, right? If and and Democrats have definitely run on gun safety, and Republicans have run completely anti-gun safety. If we get a bipartisan bill, substantive, before the November elections. That do you know how much of a win that is, and uh, and to have AOC and other folks come out here and poo poo it. Remember how we one of the things we've been saying: you got to take your wins. Can you get where you get them? If you just think about brass politics, forget the policy for a second here. Where we do know that even though we know that the policy is going to potentially have some great impact for a lot of people, but let's just think hard cold politics. The, do you know how much of a defeat it is for the right if there's any kind of gun legislation that passes and gets signed and does so with Republican votes? is Are the people on the left really paying attention 
to to what's going on here. Now, we can say, well, it doesn't do enough. First and foremost, there's some substantive stuff in that bill. And if any of the substantive stuff passed by itself, um, not in the aftermath of two mass shootings, those would be significant gun pieces. The other thing I was going to say, too, that really frustrated me about AOC's response is everything that's in this bill is stuff that various Democrats, her colleagues, her colleagues in the Democratic caucus have worked and fought for for years. And so when she goes ahead and she disses the bill, she's dismissing the work of her colleagues, who all of whom have been working very hard to get various pieces. So one, any of these by themselves would be significant. Two, you and I both know a standalone bill does not do a lot if the other things are an element. This is very comprehensive, so it has the ability to to, to save uh, a lot of lives. And three, just a hard, cold, hard political calculation of the Democrats will literally get to spike the ball. And what we don't need is people on our side saying you can't spike the ball because this is a this is definitely something we can spike the ball on. I, I completely agree. John, correct me if I'm wrong. It's Chris Murphy who led the Democrats on the on that side, correct? Right, in the Senate, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so somebody said, somebody we mutually follow said, I trust Chris, and if Chris is good with it, I'm good with it. And and he's been working on this for a long time, right? And he's he's worked with Republicans on this. He sat down with, um, I think, Cornyn, if I'm not mistaken, and got this done. Here's the other thing, John. You said it yourself. Cornyn, if I'm not mistaken, walked into uh, a, a Texas event and was booed because of this. And so I wonder if this does hurt Republicans. But at the same time, I think a lot of the Republicans who voted for it were either on their way out or weren't foreseeing election in the next uh, kind of two elections. So they might feel like um, uh, it's okay to play with. But here's the thing, John, you said it yourself, right? It's We consider, I think we're in a lame, I don't know if we're in a technically a lame deck session, but ain't nothing happening until November. So um, for this to get passed before November is, is, is an accomplishment. And like you said, there isn't going to be one bill that's going to fix everything. And I'm sure there's going to be more down the pipeline that at least we'll try to do. I don't know if it'll be successful or not, but this is something. And I said it before, I don't mean to reiterate, but if this saves a life or two or three, um, then it's a success. There's no doubt about it. There's what and north of, and I never find a really good number, but let's just make up a number. Say that we have 40,000 people each year who lose their lives to gun violence. If if we had any kind of bill that saved 1% gun violence by 1%, do you know how many people that would be saving? And you and I both know we're fortunate right now. Uh, we have people that we love who are not gun violence victims or what have you. That might be saving my life, your life, someone we care about life. And likewise, if not passed, that could be costing someone that we care, our lives and someone who cares about life. So let's not poo-poo the, you know, what people think of bare minimum. When you're talking about the number of people that died from gun violence, um, and think about it, uh, what, what are those kids in Uvalde, they may have been the first whatever to do something. They may have been the person who solves, you know, cancer, you know, cures cancer. They may be the person to figure out the way to reverse climate change. We have to stop losing lives because many of the lives we're losing could we make, even if we don't know them, they have the ability to make a difference, a positive difference in our lives. And, and we, we got to just start acknowledging that. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's weird. But now the one piece before we move on to the final story, but going back to the guns is 
Um, and I guarantee you, can I predict the press? If we pass this law and assign it to the law by Biden, much like Roe versus Wade will motivate Democrats, you and I both know there's going to be somebody saying, this is a loss for Democrats because it's going to motivate Republicans to do blah, 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 blah. So uh, do, do, do you think that spin's going to happen, that if it happens, that uh, there will be people maybe overstating the potential political backlash to Democrats and the motivating factor to Republicans on this uh, uh, that the legislation would have? I do, and I, I might take it a step further and say, uh, let's say this passes, everything's good, and then there's another school shooting, which inevitably there will be. Um, they're going to say, Biden's gun legislation failed. It didn't stop this mass shooting. So there's, there's going to be those stories for sure. But like you said, it, 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 if this is going to help, then that's the story here. Also, John, just to be, uh, just to be a millennial for a second, there's so much wrong with the world, climate change and war and inflation, gas, whatever, right? There's so much wrong with the world. If this bill makes the world just a tad bit better place, it might not fix everything. It just makes it a little bit better. Like you said, it saves one kid or, or it, it prevents one shooter or what have you, or, or not even a shooter, right? It can just be like I was saying with domestic violence and stuff like that. It, it, it can make the world a safer place for those most vulnerable. And um, that then that's fine. It, it doesn't have to go further than that. There's other things we could do. And then we could piggyback off this for now. So I, I don't really care about the coverage anymore because they're going to spin anything as a Biden a failure. So um, I, I almost don't want to even think about it. So one of the things, the salacious, let's get into salaciousness. We've not had salaciousness lately. But one of the salacious things that happened this week was some rumors came out of Colorado. Uh, about none of the Lauren Boebert um, that alleges she may have had abortions, that she may have spent a little bit of time as a sex worker and had an encounter with um, with uh, Ted Cruz. Um, I think that because we don't know what's verifiable and what's not verifiable, I'd rather the discussion not be about the hardcore, but I think it should be about the reaction. Um, I think I said to you, here's the problem about the way we, Democrats, people on the left play the game and the way Republicans play the game. I think that even though there's a lot of people tweeting about it and a lot of people talking about it, there's now been, I think she's threatened legal action. I'm not sure if she's followed through with legal action. And there's some people who are taking their time um, in trying to figure out whether or not it's something to go with. And I see a lot of people chastising folks. You and I both know that if the right had similar information on, say, an AOC, uh, there would not be this interrogation, this deliberate, thoughtful debate on the left that we have on the left on the right. Um, I don't know if it's good or bad. I just want that acknowledgement. What are your thoughts about the fact that when we get something hot, salacious, we are a lot more deliberate and demand a lot more integrity before we hop on it. What are your thoughts on that aspect of the Bulbert situation? Yeah. When you sent it my way, uh, uh, um, I can sense your frustration because we weren't pouncing on it or not that we weren't or not pouncing on it, but that we weren't reacting in that way. But I, I told you what you tell me is like, we're just different party. We don't believe in doing things that way, at least until we can figure out if it's true or not. I think that's the biggest hindrance in this story. The other aspect of it, John, is let's say all of this is true. There's nothing wrong with uh, sex work and there's nothing wrong with getting abortions, Right. 
I think the problem we have as Democrats is they are trying to stop those things. Lauren Boebert, uh, Boebert com- campaigns against abortions, campaigns against those things. And so we're really mad at the hypocrisy that she's trying to take rights away from people that she that she has given herself. So that's the only real problem we have. Same thing with uh, Lindsey Graham rumors. Same thing with, I don't know if the rumors of Madison Cawthorn and those videotapes. It was like we didn't have the problem with actually what was happening as much as it was the hypocrisy and the judgment from Madison amongst the people who might partake in those activities in the privacy of their own home. So, yeah, I'm, I, when you sent it to me, I'm going to believe those stories for the simple fact that these people are deplorable. And I believe everything. Uh, I believe that there's a lot of skeletons in their closet. Uh, and we all have skeletons. I don't mean to be judgmental in that way, but uh, we're not, I'm not actively campaigning to take rights away from anybody. So, uh, I don't know if this will ever get confirmed, but the fact is it, it, she's having trouble. She's having the same trouble that Madison had. The same company, same group that went after Madison is going after her. her. And so in that way, I believe that there's more coming down the pipeline. And I think what, but I, and I wonder if the, one of the discussions that Democratic strategists, comms people, opposition research people need to start really coming, having a realization is that we have certain values and certain principles um, one as relates to what we can and cannot verify. I do, and as we said, we do think our voters are different. But then, two, I understand that when we see a Republican doing something that is not technically shameable, but they've railed against, that we have two reactions. We have people who will call them out on it immediately, um, and that might be disrespectful to sex workers if someone's alleged to be LGBTQ, if someone's got abortions. Um, but I understand that energy because we want to call out the hypocrisy. But then we also sometimes overdo it where when we see them being hypocritical, the behavior they're hypocritical is behavior we don't really want seen. And I think that's just something, I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, but that's something that's going on in our community. And how do we get political leverage out of it? Because I don't think you can watch your opponent be accused of doing certain things that go against everything they've been railing against and not take political advantage of it. Because the other side would definitely do it. But we also have some sensitivities. Do you think that there is a way to thread that needle or is it just we should go ahead and call it out without worrying about offending people or we shouldn't call it out at all because we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to go against our values. What is your attitude, especially because I see when uh, when someone is, it, it really revolves around LGBTQ issues, when someone who has a track record of being anti-gay and everything else is outed, um, there's many on our side who say, no, no, you can't do that. And I want to respect that, but you're also failing that that there is a something to be exploited. Now we have to do it without being offensive, but what is your thought about that? So I'll answer this by, by repeating something that you always tell me, uh, and I won't say anything specific, but uh, sometimes it's not about the materials, about the messenger, right? So you might want to do something against an opponent, but it doesn't necessarily have to come from you specifically, right? I'm not saying you, I'm saying the proverbial you, right? So uh, may, does Pelosi have to drop this dirt on Boebert? She doesn't, but 
can she send it to somebody that might be appropriate to drop? Maybe. So that's, I think, the fine line is when it becomes uh, serious reporting and becomes confirmed, then maybe people can take official stances on it. But until that happens, you just have to let the conversation happen. If you could work behind the scenes to make that conversation happen, then that's fine. This is what happened with Madison, right? Madison, there wasn't Democrats. Madison's opponent wasn't a Democrat. He was facing a Republican primary, right? So it wasn't like Democrats were dropping this, but they might've had dirt on him and sent it to the right people and then got out. So that's how I would do it. So, so you're saying like, so for instance, I'll give you three examples. So in the, in the Boebert situation, it doesn't even have to be an elected official. It could be uh, someone who would say like, look, I'm a sex worker. Um, for years, Republican Party has shamed us and, and, and told us, you know, to go in a corner and not protect our rights. And here she is, a member of Congress who used to be a sex worker. Uh, if it's someone who is an outing of an LGBTQ person, that that message should be driven by, say, you know, the Equality Pact or someone else who's going to be able to thread that needle. Right. And, 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 and to do it so in a manner that doesn't shame someone for being gay, but shames them for basically um, being a hypocrite and to act, you know, act against that larger community. That's kind of prob- is that where you're going with it? Is that it, it, it probably has to be that messenger as opposed to the me- the messenger is more important than the message itself. What you're saying. Uh, th- that could be a possibility, but I also mean what we call underground, like Pelosi or anybody. I'm not, I'm just using her example, but the governor of Colorado, what have you, might leak something to somebody that he wants to use, but he can't or she, and might leak it to somebody like a, a news reporter or a blogger, or a Twitter follower or something, just to get it out there, just to get in the conversation. And it might, same thing with Madison Cawthorn. It's just a private group that's going after him. And then the Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, I forgot their name, the Lincoln Project boys went after him. Uh, Midas Touch guys went after him. So once it picks up, Democrats have to, they could stand back and say, hey, we didn't do any of this. It had nothing to do with us. But we're, we're, we might be working behind the scenes to kind of make some of that stuff happen. So it's kind of both those situations. Right. So for we're, we're coming up on an hour. So for now, this is John signing off. This is Fadi signing off. Thanks for joining us, guys. Oh.